Hello and welcome back to another episode of You Want to Do What with Dan and Julie. Today we have Mary Ann O'Hotter on, who is an anthropologist and broadcaster. Hi Mary Ann, how are you? Hello, I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. Um, so do you want to tell everyone a little about what you actually do? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, <laughs> so I um, studied archaeology and anthropology at university and now I mostly work in television but I also write books, uh, magazine articles, I host podcasts and I guess that all falls under broadcaster. So now I'm an anthropologist and broadcaster. Very cool. And what sort of made you go into anthropology itself? Oh, so I think growing up, um, I always wanted to be a vet, actually, and then didn't much enjoy chemistry at GCSE and thought, oh, God, vet science looks like it's got a lot of chemistry involved in it. Maybe I don't want to spend years and years and years studying chemistry and mm. drug interactions and all that stuff. I actually just quite like animals. Um, and <laughs> that kind of put me on the back foot because I'd always had this vision of knowing what it was that I wanted to do. Um, but around that time, I was about, must have been 14 or 15, I saw a, a TV documentary about these two mountaineering archaeologists who had climbed this um, mountain um, in South America called Mount Ampato and they'd found um, or were excavating the site where a naturally mummified body was um, sort of starting to protrude out of the the, the glacier the, the frozen um, rock and ice up at the top of this mountain wow. and it was discovered that this was a, an Incan um, uh, human sacrifice oh my god wow yeah yeah and that's that was exactly my response oh my god wow because I think that is the appropriate response and this girl was 12 years old and because of the um the, the techniques that, that they were able to use in order to investigate and and kind of really uh, forensically unpick what had happened and what the archaeological science was was telling them um it revealed that she'd been a human sacrifice that she'd been groomed for this and they were bringing in sort of social history and, and the understanding that they already had of of people from this period um and it was it was sort of just it, it was mind-blowing to me that you could have um such breadth of different ways of approaching the world that the idea that if you're 12 year old or if you were 12 the the very idea of being walked up to the top of a mountain by the high priests and then bonked on the head and offered up to the gods would be really a very excellent thing rather than be a kind <laughs> of strange child abuse slash murder um cult i that totally blew me away and i i I've always grown up, my mum is Indian, my dad is Polish, and so I've always grown up having a, a sort of sense of other cultures in the world. Mm. And this is what I think sort of sealed the deal, because I thought, wow, hang on a minute, this is, this is all the interesting things about being human and about interacting with the world and trying to understand the psychology and the science and making sense of it. Um, so that's ultimately what led me to archaeology and anthropology. And then I think what led me into broadcasting rather than a career in academia or going off to use anthropology as a journalist or in um, international development or, I don't know, like going to be a banker or something, was that idea of 
wanting to share these stories with um, a wide public and making sometimes what is quite difficult or complicated science um, interesting and accessible. And the challenge is you don't need to dumb it down. You just need to approach it with um, clarity and enthusiasm and share why it is that you're interested because mm. because it is really fascinating even stuff that might seem quite dull at first has the potential to capture people's imagination like you wouldn't believe and anthropology in itself what is the actual sort of definition of, of anthropology it's a part of archaeology and kind of history what's the actual definition of it well if you ask an anthropologist they would say no it's totally separate from archaeology <laughs> um, and actually archaeology and anthropology was only ever taught as as kind of two si- oh hang on let me go back our anthropology is the study of people in the broadest sense so there's in um in the uk it's generally taught in two sort of two sides of the same coin one is a biological anthropology which is um evolutionary processes how we've diverged from other great apes like gorillas and chimpanzees um things like environmental health and um how disease changes people's evolutionary or humans evolutionary processes um, and then there's also social anthropology, which was the bit that I uh, specialised in more, which is the study of, of culture and family relationships and connectedness. Um, there's a lot of crossover with psychology, with philosophy, with sociology. Um, but generally, anthropology doesn't sort of set up um, some kind of social experiment where you test people's responses to different faces in a laboratory or you kind of set up some kind of unusual um, study in a a kind of a student bar or something like that. It's generally um, based on ethnographic fieldwork where you go and live or spend a lot of time with the people that you're trying to understand and study so that you're kind of walking in their shoes so it's a kind of in-depth, qualitative approach to understanding your subject. So it's not just uh, looking at civilizations in the past, but also uh, cultures today as well. Yeah, so most anthropologists study um, sort of living cultures. Um, but the thing that the reason that archaeology and anthropology were originally studied together is a kind of a colonial um product of of kind of Victorian um, attitudes to uh, people from overseas because inevitably you kind of had a a white colonial explorer or a missionary or you know someone from the East India Company wearing a pith helmet going off to (laughs) um, you know study the savages and and they would they treated um studying people from very different cultures and and different ethnic backgrounds and different parts of the world in much the same way as they approached um, trying to categorize and understand the natural world. So there'd be people on an expedition who would be going off to kind of collect snakes and uh, other people going off to hunt tigers. And then there'd be some people going to study them, the the strange savages who live in the forest (laughs) and thank God we've moved on from that. Um, but the the kind of the concept was that these were primitive peoples and that they were using, for example, stone technologies. And so archaeology and anthropology came together because the idea was that white 
um, inevitably Christian civilizations were more progressed, were more advanced. And so actually when you're looking at people who live in very different ways, it's more akin to studying people from um, the European past. So the people who built Stonehenge might be equivalent to the people who currently live in Patagonia. Um, again, it's, it's just not true. I think, um, A, it's clearly not true. And B, I think the, the thinking has moved on uh, hugely and profoundly so that we're not now looking at um, other cultures and sort of saying, look, there's a discrete thing that you can study and put in a glass case in a museum and write about because we know better than they know. Mm. But also you're not saying these people are stuck in the past. Look at their primitive backward ways um, so we can compare them. That's why they were kind of studied together. Now, I think there is a slightly more progressive explanation and reason to study them together, which is that anthropology can actually inform our understanding of archaeology really well, because what you're actually doing is looking at the material culture of past cultures. So you're not just looking at... Um, science or, or kind of hard data that is separate and divorced from all the messy complexities of being human um you know people living in the neolithic five thousand years ago trying to build a chambered tomb in somerset <laughs> also read about their children and they also worried about what they were going to have for dinner and they also worried about what happens when they die and all that stuff that we do now mm. so it's kind of sometimes I think quite useful uh, they don't necessarily think about them and worry about them in the same ways that we do but it's also always quite useful I think to sort of bring an anthropological eye to the past. Speaking about that obviously you uh, you were lucky enough to work on Time Team which was one yeah. of my favourite shows growing up I used to watch that all the time. It was one of my favourite shows growing up too and then I got to work on it which was must have been amazing. So cool and weird yeah yeah it was eight. How did the anthropology sort of help you interpret what you found and, and that must have been such a, a cool period of, of your career? It was funny actually because I um so when I first graduated uh, with a degree in archaeology and anthropology, having specialised in social anthropology, I didn't actually know what I did want to do with myself. It's, it's only that I, I came to, to broadcasting and, and writing, um, I guess, incrementally, realising that's what, that's what would suit me. Um, so I didn't really know what I wanted to do um, and spent a couple of years doing really random odd jobs. I worked in a bar, I worked in a shop, I was doing some modelling at the same time, partly just simply because that would mean that I could travel. Um, having not earned very much money, I still got to go to interesting places. Um, but then my first TV job, my break effectively, was presenting a, an archaeology documentary so I kind of had to hurriedly go back and get all my textbooks and go, oh, no, I do, <laughs> I do remember all this. I do remember it um, and sort of put an archaeology head back on. And it's sort of only accident, really, that means that I've done a lot of archaeology on TV and written about archaeology now um, because of that first opportunity that sort of took me back to uh, British prehistory. Um, I've, I've done I've done a fair few bits of more anthropological programming as well which I guess is sort of somewhere between travel meets sort of culture social history stuff mm. um but time team was fantastic because it meant that I got to spend a whole summer um standing next to field archaeologists who are incredibly experienced at 
basically digging away at, at what I can see as mud and going, ah, oh, yes, can you see? And you're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, what is it that I'm seeing? And they're like, oh, yes. And everyone's getting really excited. And I'm like, terribly sorry, but what, what are we all looking at? Um, I have to I admit, guess- when I was growing up and watching it, I always wanted them to find like an Indiana Jones type tomb or something, but it never quite happened. <laughs> I know. Disappointing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but but the thing that, that really blew my mind spending that summer on all these different sites was that it's an extraordinary combination of very meticulous, quite hard manual labour and then these kind of leaps of intellectual, you know, sort of gymnastics where people go, ah, oh, yes, this is just like blah, blah, blah site in, um, you know, Rutland, uh, <laughs> which dated to 1240 because this pottery is just like that. And look, you can see from the, the fabric in the actual clay, the way it's been baked, the pattern on the side of it, this means this and blah, blah, blah. And if you put that together with this, and it was like watching... Um, a slightly more coherent Sherlock Holmes, uh, like a whole team of detectives bringing together all these pieces of evidence and then like building a case um, that explained what it was that would mean all this evidence was where it was in the ground and why some of it wasn't where you thought it might be and why this definitely was. And therefore building it into what we already knew to sort of take the, the story one chapter forwards. And they literally really did do it all in three days. And then you do all the post-excavation analysis, which takes weeks and weeks afterwards, if not months, um, which you don't see on TV. Mm. But the actual excavation and the interpretations that Mick and Phil and Francis um, and and Helen were doing in the field uh, really did happen as they were filmed. Like it wasn't put on for TV. That was just archaeologists being brilliant at their job. So you've spoken a little bit about your degree. What sort of uh, things did you do at university, and uh, has that sort of how has that translated out of it? I know you obviously jumped around jobs after. Yeah, um, so I studied at Emmanuel College um, at Cambridge University. Um, I went to a a pretty ordinary state school in Cheshire. I, I didn't go to a posh school uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Then I went to sixth form college, and I studied. Um, maths and further maths i don't really know why i did further maths i know i'm I'm not actually i'm not that makes me sound like i'm good at maths but i'm I'm all right (laughs) i'm all right maths i thought i just had a nice maths teacher and he went you could do further maths and i was like oh can i and (laughs) then like signed up for it and then was stuck with it and it was a nightmare (laughs) don't ever make me do pure five again god i didn't know what i was doing um (laughs) Uh, but so I studied maths, psychology, and biology because by that point I I knew that I wanted to go to particularly Cambridge. I, I, I'd kind of got into my mind that Cambridge was a, a place that I wanted to try and get into, and um, I wanted to study archaeology and anthropology. And so I at uni, honestly, it was a bit of a it was a bit of a shock to the system, I think, because I went to a sixth form college where um, a few of us went to Oxbridge or equivalent um, universities, but not that many people. And so I think my, for example, my form tutor was, I, I think, kind of proud of me. And, and you know, you'd, you'd walk into a class and I, I always had the sense that I knew what I was doing in terms of my 
the coursework, I could do all the reading, I understood and enjoyed the subjects. And then you go to university, and I know everybody's experiences are different, but you go to university and so all of a sudden you're this like little fish in a very big pond, whereas mm. I'd come from being a big fish in a little pond and just sort of flapping around, not really feeling like I was being a bit rubbish and really, really average I guess but because you're in a funny bubble where you're suddenly at Cambridge University and everybody's really good and your tutors don't necessarily know who you are <laughs> <laughs> or, or your lecturers at least don't know who you are and they don't really care who you are that was the thing that I was like oh but 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 uh, I'm Mary Ann and they're like <laughs> and I've got a research seminar to do and I've got a you know a whole you know funding proposal to you know sort out and I've got this graduate student and like, like you just don't really count very much mm. um and I remember you know because you're studying archaeology social anthropology and biological anthropology and, and they kind of have very different um, approaches and very different foundations in terms of the subject and because you've not studied any of them before you're kind of you have to hit the ground running and so these reading lists were massive and I remember the social anthropology reading list one of them was Das Kapital by Marx and I was like which bit of it am I supposed to read am I actually <laughs> supposed to read the whole thing and so I start you know very earnest and I can't understand a word of it because it's <laughs> complex and it's you know quite wordy and I've got you know seven other books and an essay to write that week as well as ideally going to the bar and you know making some friends <laughs> and, and I, I don't know I found it I found it quite a sort of challenging experience um and I think honestly I'm I'm 39 now I think it took about 10 years mm. after graduating for me to fully appreciate what it was that Cambridge gave me which was actually the things that as served me really well in my career now which is the ability to um work out what bits are important for you to actually know uh, how to get to the heart of the question and then to synthesize it all very quickly so that I could then for example now do an interview with someone about marks and I wouldn't necessarily know all the answers, but I know enough to ask the right questions and to make it make sense to my audience who probably also don't know much about Marx. Mm. Um, and I think that's the secret. That's one of the weird things that, particularly the way that Cambridge, um, and I think I'd, I'd assume Oxford as well, teach, because it's a funny, slightly old fashioned way of doing things, um, where they sort of throw you in a deep, the deep end of the pool and go, off you go. And you go, <laughs> And then you sort of splash about and, and you do eventually find that you can swim. Mm. And I suppose uh, another question would be, what is an average day like through an anthropologist? <laughs> and I suppose it's a bit of a two-ended question as well. What's an average day like for you being an anthropologist and broadcaster? So, so it's a good question. It, it, it can be very varied. If you're a, a field anthropologist um, uh, working in um, an academic circle, then you might... Um, spend you know years of your life um in the field inverted commas not necessarily always an actual field uh, that might be in a city chicago it might be um amongst tribal people in um the brazilian amazon who whose most recent work was about um, jockeys at newmarket and then she so she literally learned to ride racehorses and worked as a groom in one of the um, racehorse stables in Newmarket in order to sort of get 
into the world not not a kind of faking it way but genuinely just so that she was in the right place at the right time to have conversations and start to understand how um people saw the world and then the next thing that she did was to try and understand betting and betting culture and so she started to work at a bookies in north london um, and she's you know <laughs> this like very um academically like astonishingly bright uh, academic with um you know years and years of research experience but she was sort of doing a a pretty drudgy job um working in a bookies in in the sort of like the back end of the high street somewhere because she wanted to learn what it was like to do that job and to be someone who was a you know walking into a betting shop at the 10 minutes after it opened and then leaving you know five minutes before it closed and what life was like and what it all meant for those people so my job is not like that my job is much more eclectic and I I quite like that because I don't think I've got the patience to spend five years studying one subject um so for example this week I had um a book published um thank you uh called Secret Britain and it brings together um 75 different sites and artifacts from around Britain um that are kind of mysterious that that are intriguing and puzzling and even though we know quite a lot about them we can't answer all the questions so everything from Stonehenge to um, this amazing wooden um, icon thing called the Dagenham Idol because it was found in Dagenham um, which oh, is uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah of all the things to come out of Dagenham a god <laughs> a god no less an Iron Age god is about um well, uh, Iron Age? Is it Iron Age? No, it's Bronze Age. So it's from about 2200 BC. Um, and it's made of Scots pine. And it's it's really bizarre. It hasn't got arms, although it probably did have arms originally. And it's got a strange hole, a circular hole at the crotch. So um, they don't know whether it used to have a sort of appendage that has fallen out. <laughs> Or whether it's some kind of fertility symbol, you know, that it, actually it's a female god goddess all sorts of things anyway so that book came out so i've done some interviews i've written some articles for um national newspapers and for magazines um i'm working on an idea for a podcast for um audible uh, which is a bit more anthropological and i'm also thinking about um what the next book is that i might write so I'm doing research and reading. Some of that is um, sort of more academic journals, but some of it is just cruising around on the internet, looking at ideas and looking at what other people have written about. Is that the sort of way you want to take your career, looking at, um, or sorry, writing and podcasts and information, that sort of way? I don't really like writing very much. I find it a little <laughs> bit... <laughs> it just says the woman who's just published her third book. Um, I... I find it quite lonely and quite annoying um, because you have to, you know, a lot of it is just you sitting at your laptop uh, thinking and then working quite hard. You know, those ideas where kind of writers sit waiting for inspiration. Ask any writer and and they'll probably go, no, that doesn't really happen very much at all. (laughs) Uh, What you actually have to do is just put the hours in of like bashing out a, a crap first draft that is really rough and it's just going back to the beginning and working through it again um, is the thing that actually finesses your thinking. It's the thing that finesses what, what it is that you want to want to say. So that all that kind of planning and then drafting 
um it that's that's all the kind of paddling under the surface and then actually da-da, it looks like you've magically written a book and you go no 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 there's a lot of hours of effort that have gone in behind the scenes um but i find yeah i i really like um the thing that i really like about making radio documentaries and tv docs is that um you work with a team and inevitably you're working with other people who are trying to think creatively about what it is the, uh, what is the story what kind of you know what are the crucial pieces of information that we want to share or or the the feelings that we want our audience to have which means that they care about this story as much as we do now whether that's um you know children who are growing up in um a slum in New Delhi who are trying to teach themselves how to teaching each other how to read and write because they see that literacy is the way to get out and to change their lives and their families' lives whether it's something like that or whether it's something about you know what was the point of Stonehenge if you kind of just assume that people are interested in that whether that's you know um, kids living in poverty in India or whether that's a bunch of old stones in Wiltshire you're kind of you're you're not going to get very far because people go oh well, you care but I don't see why I do on on some level greater or lesser extent um so you kind of have to you have to it's I like the challenge I like the challenge of working together of working out how you share the information how you make it interesting and then how you do justice to your subjects um either the people that you're interviewing or who've allowed them them allowed you into their lives um or whether it's you know the the researchers work that you're profiling um, i think there's a really sort of um interesting theme that's come out of uh, having these conversations with people so far like yourself and we had dr chris norton on who's an egyptologist hmm. um and sort of very academic subjects um both egyptology archaeology and anthropology but yet you guys have all taken it and made it into sort of a uh, communications-based sort of careers almost and you're broadcasting and writing books and talking to people about it and getting people excited about it and it's not necessarily what people think of when they think of these jobs they think of academics I think. Yeah I um I co-host a, a podcast for Wiley who are the science publishers and uh, they're the podcast is called this study shows and it's all about science communication my co-host is um an amazing scientist called professor danielle george and she's based at the university um of manchester she's a, a radio physicist wow. and yeah it's really cool she did explain her 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 work to me once and i i I got quite far in understanding it, um, but I'd let her explain it above me attempting to explain it. Um, but the thing that um, the thing that we const so we we interview scientists and science journalists as well, and people who are trying to engage with either like fellow academics or fellow scientists or fellow researchers, or talk to the media, whether that's about the importance of vaccination whether that's going to the deep south of america to to you know do a road show about human evolution um whether that's kind of you know challenging uh, racist attitudes in in science that people haven't even realized necessarily that they have they kind of go oh this is just what we do and you go well hang on a minute have you realized that all your research subjects are middle-class white people um that might skew your results you need to um you know be be challenging your own assumptions um about who an average person is 
inverted commas average um but uh, the thing the thing that that comes up again and again in that podcast is that even if you are even if you want to be a kind of like dyed in the wool hardcore hard science i'm all about crunching the data or you know fine-tuning my laboratory instruments or you know setting up this electron microscope or whatever it is that you're doing um ultimately at some point you will need to explain to someone else what it is that you're doing um whether that's a colleague whether that's someone that you're trying to convince it's important because you want funding from them or for for many researchers um you know the funding that you're getting or the way that you're being paid by a university is through public money and so i think there's a value in in sort of appreciating that even though it's sometimes difficult and even though sometimes it feels like it's not your job to explain evolution to a bunch of people on bbc two or on a podcast or answer this annoying journalist's questions actually the more that the public can be engaged in proper proper um reputable research the more they are invested in rejecting fake news in turning to uh, reliable sources of information of trusting experts of kind of saying i have I'm invested in science. Science is an important thing to me because I think it's an important way for humanity to solve the problems that we're all facing. And so science should be um, well-funded. Science should be protected from random, you know, political decisions that we should have, you know, well-funded universities that um, our talented kids should be able to get, you know, move forwards and, and do good jobs in places where they can actually earn a living so i think if you stop and think about it we all do have a, a kind of a role to play in in terms of um sharing important stories about why why we're doing what we're doing because yeah, ours absolutely. is a knowledge economy most people aren't growing potatoes that feed us <laughs> um and if even if you are growing potatoes part of your part of your job is to explain why potatoes are good and yeah. why people should eat them and why they should care about the soil science and whether you're you know um dropping a bunch of possibly harmful fertilizers on them um and you know killing the fish in the river or whether you're not doing that and why you might not be doing that so i think even if you're growing potatoes your job is partly communication that's a really good point. Everybody actually in this day and age, especially with social media, can be and probably to some extent should be communicating what they do. Maybe. And has a responsibility to communicate, communicate the truth. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think also um, um, to engage in debate and to not sort of shout down um, people who disagree. One of the, the best pieces of advice I've, I've I received over the past 12, 18 months was go to your social media profiles and go and find people and follow them, people who you don't agree with. Now, these aren't people yeah. that would negatively affect your mental health. So if you worry about your body image, do not go and follow a bunch of influencers who are just going to make you feel crap about yourself. That's not what I mean. Who are going, wow, look, I just always look like this because they don't, truth be told. Um, but, 
but people who might disagree with you um, politically, people who might disagree with you in terms of the role of um, government or society, all that stuff. I, I um, think that's a really good point because I think people are more and more becoming more and more divided in their opinions. And if we can all just go, okay, let's start in the centre and then if you're a little bit to the left, maybe follow people a little bit to the right. You know, I'm not saying right wing or left wing, but just different opinions off from the centre that we can all sort of have better conversations And also, with. I think those on social media currently... The, the information that's out there is generally quite far to the left and right. And it is the stuff that is shouting and it is better to have the people in the middle who are probably just on either side of the fence to talk to each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Read, follow and, and go like if you've got um, a news website, that's your homepage um, or you subscribe to a, a kind of news website, go and subscribe to a news website or have your homepage as the other side of the fence, you know, um because it's just subtle things but you'll catch yourself going that's not true (laughs) and you go well hang on a minute two things how do you know because otherwise you're just you know chatting into your own echo chamber and two it's probably quite useful for you to know what other people are thinking even if it is simply in order for you to be to marshal your arguments because you do disagree with them and you want to engage in a meaningful and, and fruitful yeah. conversation not just shout at them or tell them they're idiots or ignore them because i think that is the the risk of, of social media it's dead easy to post something up and go yeah 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 me 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 this 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 and all the shouty voices come to the front but i think yeah all us reasonable folk even if we don't agree with each other we do need to keep talking I think that's a great point. But just going back to anthropology a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> um, what, yeah we could talk about that. For yeah, we could talk about that. Yeah, we could, yeah. <laughs> um, and what, we should. <laughs> what are some of the most interesting things that you've found in anthropology or you've been involved with? Um, so I think I've I've been incredibly fortunate to particularly through TV, you, you almost get a kind of access all to uh, places, to people inviting you into their lives. So I, I made a, a radio documentary for um, BBC Radio 4 about global sanitation. So the fact that basically two and a half million, a billion, two and a half billion people just under um, people in the world do not have access to safe sanitation. So they don't have anywhere to do a poo that um, bluntly they don't have anywhere to do a poo that means that the poo will stay separate from their food and drinking water um, which kills people by the million every year um, and it's a it's quite a simple... yeah about a third of the population oh yeah yeah it's insane it's it's extraordinary and um and so we were making this um documentary for um uh the the radio and so we went to bangladesh to dakar the the capital city and to a a rural part of india and it was amazing that uh we we were able i was able to go to communities that as a tourist as a sort of regular traveler just it would have been very very difficult to access and it would have felt um somehow much less appropriate to be kind of wandering around slum to kind of go hello i'd just like to have a look around that doesn't seem quite as appropriate as um being able to 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 speak with people and interview them and um 
be in a situation where you are seeking information rather than sort of wandering around sort of in a privileged way um and that you know the following afternoon you'll go to see the wildlife park and all the other interesting local sites uh, it, it wasn't that it felt much more um collaborative i i guess and that you have this amazing access so there was this one woman who was telling us about what it had been like to grow up on a, a kind of a stilted um uh, sort of township so these kind of shanty towns that are on stilts above um, what well, is basically just like a fetid pool of human waste and litter and drain water. Oh my God. Oh yeah. It was, it was terrible. It was terrible. And she, you know, she'd grown up near there and now she had two little kids and they, they said, Oh, this is where we, this is our toilet. And they showed me. And now I'm about five foot 11 and I weigh about 80 kilos. So I'm not a small person and um <laughs> and um and and they said oh this is the toilet and i was like oh right should i go up there to have a look at it and it was this like little narrow really <laughs> really rickety walkway to this um sort of cubicle at the end that was made of sort of uh, planks and bits of old brushwood with a little um cloth curtain and it was basically just a, a shed with no base so that when you went to the loo, you sort of hung on to the to the to the wooden frame and all your you just drop the business, your business into the, the pool of water that was under everyone's houses. And I said, oh, should I go and have a look? And they're like, no, no, it's not <laughs> strong enough for someone as big as you. And they oh were so worried God. that I would break their toilet um which i probably would have and if i had broken their toilet it would also have involved me falling into the horrors um but they were saying every every um every season when it rains the rainy season the water rises and they're like well yeah the old people die and some of the, the babies die because the water rises up so high that the water level is above their the floors of their houses and so everything just gets covered in filth and oh if you're weaker or vulnerable or elderly or a tiny baby, it's just, it's very, very difficult to stay well. And if you get sick, you can't afford medical help. And it was so sobering and so humbling, but not in a kind of pity way, just because they were part of the solution. They were saying, look, this is what we need. This is how we are trying to improve things for ourselves. And it, I think that's where it feels like um, my role as an anthropologist, as a broadcaster really comes into its own because it was a proud moment for me to know that these folk who live in this community who are just like me, but life has rolled a different roll of the dice for them, um, that I could do something useful and sort of amplify their story and their demands for change and their call for I mean, firstly, us acknowledging the uh, inequality and then actually doing something about it. Um, so that yeah. that felt good. That felt good because you're kind of you're approaching you're approaching not in a kind of oh I'm I'm a white savior person to come and fix your lives, but just as a I'm I'm the way I'm my role is just to help you tell your own story and yeah. get it out to a wider audience. Well. Um... That sort of leads on to personality traits. I was going to ask, what sort of things do you see in yourself and uh, those in the field around you? Um, so, yeah, that's quite a humbling story. So, 
I think you have to be quite nosy um, and and like people. I don't think you can really do my job if you don't like talking yeah, to study people without liking them. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe think of a different job. Um, but you know, kind of genuinely, if if I were on a bus. Not that anyone's on a bus at the minute because of COVID, but, you know, sitting on a bus or a bus stop and someone starts chatting next to you, I wouldn't move. I would start chatting back to them. Um, so I think you have to be that kind of person. You have to uh, be open minded, assume that you don't know all the answers and that you have a lot to learn. Although, I mean, constant interactions with people who live very different lives to you or approach the world in very different ways, that kind of does trigger humility a lot um i think what else um i think you have to be able to think quite critically because you're not just making stuff up you have to assess the evidence you have to work out what it is that you're being told and why someone might want to sort of share that kind of information or conceal this kind of information or why they might answer in a particular way so you kind of have to have some of that sort of critical faculty to assess evidence and to build together a, a kind of a, a base of, of evidence before you work out what story it is that is true that is real that is um, objective enough that can be um that is robust to scrutiny so I guess that's a bit more journalistic I suppose or, or as well as sort of as, as a basis as a researcher um and then I think I don't, this is probably true of, of many of many jobs. Um, a sense of humour is always quite useful. Like you can't take it too seriously. Sometimes people go, "Oh, you're a TV presenter. I mean, that must be so celeb and cool." And you kind of <laughs> go, "Oh, I mean, it is. It is." I, I, I've had some kind of very cool celeb moments. I was really, I was really touched when my postman <laughs> um, knocked on the door because he, he had a parcel to deliver, and he went. I saw you on the telly at the weekend and he looked really gobsmacked because I'm normally just, you know, that woman with the wild hair who <laughs> like control her dog from like jumping on him. Um, and, and that was a really funny little moment because he'd seen me at work. <laughs> um, but I think you can't let that go to your head. I mean, my job is definitely not as important or as serious as many, many other people's jobs. It's just a bit more high profile sometimes because I'm on the telly. Mm. And yeah, don't take yourself too seriously. That would be a terrible, terrible crime. <laughs> I guess the, the next sort of uh, part of it is what are the biggest uh, positives and, and some of the best opportunities you've had out of, of your career so far? I mean, working on Time Team is amazing. And also, you know, you, you talked about the reporting on, on humanitarian sort of areas. But what are some of the biggest positives and opportunities for you? Amazing opportunities to travel and travel in a way that sort of gives you permission and access to people's lives to the back rooms of museums to helping the curator handle a particular artifact all the stuff that is kind of you know you, you get to go on the other side of the no entry sign uh, that's that's all pretty cool um being able to work with creative very intelligent people who are also invested in in the project um so that's what collaborative teamwork um being able to work on projects that matter 
whether that's a better science communication, whether that's hosting a conference uh, for business leaders about achieving net zero carbon emissions, whether that's um, sort of sharing a, a piece of um, heritage research where it means that maybe that project will get funding so that they can protect that monument for another you know thousand years um so sort of doing work where you feel like you're you're making an impact a positive change and i think finally um every day being different i don't think i'd do very well if i had a job where a lot of my job was doing the same kind of stuff with the same kind of people so i really like the variety that's good and on the uh the other side of that what are some of the uh, the less favorable aspects of the uh the industry i think um financially the uncertainty is is quite difficult and that's true of freelancers that's true of uh, many people in the creative industries um and i think even more so obviously um tackling covid and possibly the impact of brexit and the international economic downturn i mean like things are going to be tough for a lot of people i think coming up um so i think i mean now i've been doing this job now for um 17 years no 15 16 years and i only just in the past couple of years have i felt a little bit more secure that i don't need to worry because work will come along um, it might not be quite what I expect. I don't necessarily know what I'm going to be doing next month, but I know that I'll get enough bits and bobs of work that it'll keep the kind of the balls rolling. Um, for the first 10 years of my career, uh, I got that first job presenting, co-presenting a, a documentary on, on BBC Four about Silbury Hill, which is this amazing prehistoric mound in Wiltshire with Neil Oliver. And I oh thought, wow how cool yeah it was really cool it was really super cool and I was like wow I've made it that was easy hey check me <laughs> I didn't work in tv for the next six months because I had lots of meetings and I was developing ideas and I was kind of you know getting dressed up really enthusiastic ready ready doing all my research and then it's not that I didn't get the job it's just that people were having lots of conversations going oh yeah we could pitch this idea maybe let's see we've got a meeting with the commissioner at channel four next month so we'll let you know after that and then a month later they say oh you know we we didn't get a chance to to get round to talking about that idea because we were talking about a different idea but we're going to see them again uh, in two months time so we could uh, and I'll drop them an email about it and then things either do or don't get going and they and you don't I was kind of sitting literally sitting at home on my sofa just going I've made the worst mistake of my life I don't know what I'm doing how am I going to pay the bills what what do I do now um and sort of you've got to do a lot of hustling you've got to believe in yourself a lot and you've also it's quite attritional you've got to just it's like last man standing um I think there were probably other people who would have been very good uh archaeology anthropology uh presenters who just at the point where you still haven't been on holiday and you can't afford new clothes and you're not and you're going to walk rather than get the bus because that'll save you a bit of money um and you you meet your mates for for dinner and they've all got you know fancy jobs or what have you and you eat before you go out and then just have a starter it's you know that level of just being careful with your money um i, I mean that 
it, it does get a bit wearing it's got to be said and I was very lucky that um I was living with my boyfriend who's now my husband um so that he had a kind of more steady income so that I knew that the rent was going to get paid each month at least so I think that's the most difficult thing for me um just worrying about money and kind of working out whether you haven't got any certainty you don't get all the employee benefits you know I haven't got a pension stuff like that um, mm. you know boring but important stuff um we, we like to talk about um sort of salary expectations and average incomes now broadcasting as you said what you're doing at the moment can be very unpredictable but mm. anthropology in itself uh, we look for some average figures um, uh, and it's sort of saying around thirty thousand would be an average income for a for an anthropologist does that sound right to you it's a good question i was thinking about this because i knew you were going to ask me about it and i thought to myself i don't actually know because if you were based in the field overseas it's very very possible that you would not be like your salary would be pretty pretty low you might have a research grant that would cover your living costs yeah and they might they might give you a board and food and things like that yeah exactly or you might be able to get a job where you're living uh, as well as doing your research or you might have a grant that covers your living costs but and pays you a kind of sort a small stipend from whatever institution that you're working at if you're working in a, a kind of a development agency or a, a kind of a big charity doing um, research work or or kind of um any other project work then i guess that yeah i, I guess that's probably about right maybe a okay. little more um okay that's fair enough but, um, but then i don't know i mean if you're if you're a, a cambridge academic but you're actually spending the next two years working in a bookies you're not earning 30 grand a year <laughs> um yeah so i don't know i've 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 had i've had years where i've earned very very little money um and just kind of well basically relied on my boyfriend and a wing and a prayer and eaten into my savings and then i've had years where i've gone oh that's okay Whew, i can buy <laughs> presents um famous people get loads of money for doing tv like famous tv presenters get i don't know two grand a day for all their filming days i don't get that (laughs) (laughs) what would be something that's not in the job description that you maybe have to deal with every now and then um i think doing jobs that you don't (laughs) this this is a dangerous thing to say in public doing (laughs) jobs that you don't necessarily know anything about but you go yes i can do that and then you work your ass off doing the research so that when you do turn up to the job you do know what you're asking and you do know what you what the answer is going to be um so i've done i've done work for sort of more corporate jobs really more slightly more journalistic jobs where i interviewed someone about someone about um pension protection and i was like i have no idea i have absolutely no idea about the financial instruments that protect people's pension funds um but by the time that i was interviewing that chap at 11 a.m on tuesday i did know um so i think generally the thing that is most surprising is you'd be surprised what you can teach yourself in 24 hours if you really put your mind to it how does somebody really begin to progress within the world of anthropology and broadcasting um talk to a lot of people always be polite um 
the thing that looks like being a lucky break is actually you putting in the hard work, doing the research and the homework, um, and then sort of being in the right place at the right time, and then having the chops to say, yeah, I can do that, and then actually being able to deliver. Uh, so what looks like good luck is actually hard work behind the scenes. Um, and I think, I guess being a little bit flexible, if, if you know exactly what you're aiming for, um, then you can build your networks and build your contacts, um, potentially set up internships or, or kind of short term work projects um, that will help you make those contacts and get that experience. And that's not brown nosing. That is just um, like learning from the right people and and enabling them to see the, the skills that you could bring to the party. OK. And uh, would you still go into the industry knowing what you know now? Yeah, yeah. I think because it's it's not obvious. There's no one route in. It's not like being a lawyer that you do this, that, that, yeah. and then you do those exams and then you do this kind of placement and then da-da, you've got a job. It's not that. So you kind of have to think flexibly, I think, and always look for the opportunities, whether that's um, maybe working for free for a voluntary organisation or charity or a community project, whether that's um, just extending your skill base, whether that's writing, whether that's um, like taking better photos, editing little videos, stuff like that, so that you can bring more skills to the party. That's definitely the way to go. And I think that's probably true of actually lots of jobs now, because it's that flexibility, it's that skill set that you can transfer that is probably relevant for so many jobs in our economy looking forwards from 2020 onwards. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Marianne. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. It's something I knew very little about, but it's been really interesting. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And um, where can people find you on social media and your book? Okay, so uh, on social media, on Instagram and Twitter, I am at Mary Ann O'Hotter. That's uh, M-A-R-Y-A-N-N-O-C-H-O-T-A. And my website is maryannohotter.com, where you can find out what I've been up to, uh, see some videos, photos, and order that book that I've just written. Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on. Welcome. Thanks, Maria. Goodbye. Nice one. Cheers. Thanks, guys.